This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The U.S. Steel situation, Stelco thing, I guess. I guess we can drop the U.S. Steel thing until, well, maybe until the sale actually goes through on this. But uh, one of the important elements and one of the intriguing elements about this is what's going to happen to all that land down there. Clearly, uh, they don't need it as much, as, of course, when Stelco gets back into full operation. Well, they seem to be doing pretty well right now, but when new owners come in there, uh, Bedrock comes in there, uh, they clearly don't need that land. There's, you're never going to get as many people working in that part of the steel industry as you did in the past. So who's going to take it? What's going to happen? Who's going to remediate it? In other words, clean up the contaminated land. And who's going to pay for it? I, I mean, a lot going on here, isn't there? I want to bring Marvin Ryder and business professor at the Good School of Business at McMaster University uh, to try to offer some perspective on this. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you, Bill. Let's, uh, let's talk about this. Uh, when you and I talked about this a few days ago, there was a lot of speculation about what might happen. Is it any more clear now? <laughs> well, bless you. Bless you. Merry Christmas as well. Yeah. Uh, no, Santa Claus hasn't visited and hasn't sorted it all out. There's still a lot of speculation, but let me, let me try to set up the issue sure. for you, and then we can drill down a little bit. Uh, Today, Stelco operates on roughly 320 hectares of land down on the waterfront, north end in Hamilton. Just to do a conversion for you, Bill, there's about two and a half acres per hectare, so that means it's sitting on around 800 acres of land. Uh, Absolutely Bedrock said, um, gee, if we're going to buy this, we don't necessarily want to buy the environmental obligation that comes with this. We know that there's probably some hot spots, although no one knows exactly where they are. Hot spots would be contaminated areas, or at least heavily contaminated areas. So they came up with this interesting idea. The Ontario government would, in essence, take over the land and put it in what's known as a land trust. For the part of the land that uh, U.S. Steel, or excuse me, Stelco operates on, that land would be leased back at a nominal rate, let's say a dollar a year or two dollars a year and they would be able to operate there. But the rest of the land that they don't need for operations could be remediated and then sold. So again, let's try to do a little math here over the air. If there's 800 acres, let's assume half of them are needed for the current operations, but half of them, 400 acres, could be remediated and sold. Now, the remediation cost is estimated at $80 million. And there's a story in today's spectator that says, boy, $80 million, that's not a lot of money to put into remediation. If you look at the Randall Reef cost, for instance, uh, that's that bank of coal tar there in the the water, we're talking about at least $100 million and more. Now, I believe why they're saying $80 million is because it's the least contaminated land that would likely be remediated. In other words, the land that they don't need anymore was used for things like warehouses, And although you stack up rolls of steel, and there's bound to be some steel shavings and filings, what have you, probably some motor oil from the from the uh, uh, um, trucks, forklift trucks that move Mm -hmm. things around, there's not heavy, heavy contamination. It's not the heavy metals, the cadmiums, the the, those sorts of things that you're worried about. So they believe they can remediate the top meter or two of soil and make it suitable for industrial land. And that's another key assumption here. No one is talking at this point about gentrification, building condos, building townhouses, parkland on the former U.S. steel site. And the simple reason for that, Bill, there's there's two things. First, you've got DeFasco right next door that's still going to be an operating steel mill. And then remember that what they don't need is still going to be an operating steel facility for bedrock. So you've still got a lot of heavy heavy industrial use of the land. But what they're hoping is they could take those 400 acres and then sell them 
and get them back into production. And so just to finish the loop on this, if they sell any land, the proceeds from the sale will go to top up the pension fund. And something you asked me last week is, well, will that fill the pension fund? Remember, the pension fund, at least the key one here in Hamilton, is $800 million short. In total, all the pension funds are nearly a billion dollars short. You can start doing the math here. Uh, uh, industrial land, now mind you, it's green land, near the airport today is selling for around $350,000 an acre. So if I've got 400 acres that could be cleaned to at least an environmental standard, and let's just assume you're paying that $350,000 an acre, we're talking about maybe $140 million that could be generated from the sale of the land that could be put into the pension fund. This is good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. It's another source of funding the pension. But to the workers who, who say, look, we want no more questions going forward, clearly this will not be enough to top up the pension fund to full. So there's still a lot of maybes on here. And, yes. and, and, and by the way, to your point that nobody's really talking about, uh, about you know, trying to put you know, residential properties on there, there are some people, I think, that, that are floating this idea at this stage. But uh, the city has already zoned this as industrial, heavy industrial, and that's pretty much the, the way they want to keep it, don't they? They do, and part of the reason for this, Bill, and, and why this could be actually great news for the city, is this land has been sitting vacant. It was the source of a, a tax um, uh, case, if we can call it this, where Stelco said, look, we're being charged as if these buildings are in full operation, and, the, and they really aren't. It's more or less sitting vacant, and their tax bill was reduced for that reason. So if we could get something functioning there, it doesn't have to be a steel mill, obviously, but something more than a warehouse. If we could bring back some sort of a manufacturing facility, maybe they'll make, uh, um, I don't know, canned tomatoes or, or they will uh, help produce wine or God knows whatever, a brewery. Uh, anything industrial like this will have a much higher tax rate and would help the tax base for the city of Hamilton. So that's the exciting thing. If you could get 400 acres back into some kind of industrial commercial production, the taxes generated from that will be great news for the city in the longer term. Is there enough land there to, to garner interest? I mean, it, 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 let's you, you'll use an example of 400 acres, and it may be, you know, give or take around that, that number. Is, is that going to garner interest? Is it one yeah. person that might be interested in that, or are they going to try to parcel it up? Well, the, the, you know, the best solution would be one person who wanted to buy it and build something big, uh, and I, I don't even want to say out loud what that might be because I don't want people thinking I know, but you know, if you had a car factory come along who wouldn't get 400 acres, that'd be great. But it also has the ability to be parceled off. So if you think of the airport growth lands, you know, you could do a 10-acre parcel, you could do a 20-acre, 30-acre. I believe, and I could, be, I could be misquoting this, but when Canada bred located on the mountain, I think their parcel of land was something like 80 acres. So, you know, you'd have enough space there for five things like the Canada bread plant. Who's going to be at the table to make these decisions? I mean, the province has stepped up here and, and, like you say, put some money down on the table. I'm not even sure. I agree with you. I'm not even sure if that's enough to do the remediation. But uh, does the city have a voice in this? I mean, because they're, they're a stakeholder in this, aren't they? Well, they do, they do uh, both directly and indirectly. Let me start with indirectly. Clearly, the city has zoned the land for a certain purpose. So if a buyer came along and said, we want to buy the land, but we need it rezoned, the city would have to get involved at that point. But some would argue that's too late. I think they would be directly involved because this land trust will be overseen by some kind of a board, and I'm sure at that point um, the board would have some appointees from the city, they'd have some appointees from the province who'd, who'd oversee this. In other words, it's a trust. We're holding the land in trust for the betterment of everybody. 
But all of this is really contingent upon the judge approving the sale. And, and so last week we saw the, the uh, 4,000 pages of the sale being put into the court and then seeing if there were any initial objections. The judge said at that time that he would overrule those two objections, one from the city and one from, um, one from the city and one from the union, saying that I want to see more. So this uh, first part of the deal, this 4,000-page deal, was a framework for a deal. He's now given Bedrock and Stelco a green light to come back with a final done deal, and then I will assess it, is what he said. I will assess it to see if it's in the best interest of the creditors. Now, at, during that signing of the deal, will the city be at the table? No, I don't think they'll be sitting right at the table. This is really a deal between two private partners, Stelco and Bedrock, but I'm sure there will be some side conversations because we have an interest in the land and what can and cannot be done with the land. You asked about parceling. This might mean a road would have to be punched in there to open up, say, five tracks of 80 acres each. Would that be possible? So at some point, some of the city staff would have to be engaged. Whether it will be our political leaders municipally engaged, I'm not sure about that. But this is down by the waterfront. Not all of the land is, but, I mean, it's close enough. Does the federal government have any jurisdiction over that? Because by by their own definition, don't they control what happens with land use around waterfronts? Yeah, you know, that, and that's a very good question, Bill. And, and you see, also some of that land may have been infilled. So if you were to take a map of the city of Hamilton from 100 years ago, you might actually have seen water spaces in there, which may then have been filled to create a contingent area. And I, I'm, I, frankly, I, I have one of those people who can't keep track of what pier is what number where, and there may actually be some quote-unquote peers involved in all of this. So they could have some jurisdiction, but I think right at this moment, with both a liberal federal government and a liberal provincial government, if the province really wants this, I think the, uh, the federal government would come along. But uh, they might very well also be part of the land trust and have a, a seat at the table just to make sure that the land use is consistent with any federal plans, the federal port authority, things like that. Well, I've got to take you down memory road for a few minutes here, Marvin. Uh, some of our listeners may not know this. They may not even been living in the community at that time. Uh, the city and the federal government butted heads a, a long, long time ago about exactly who owned those water lots and who had the responsibility. Yes. And that got into a really ugly court fight. I mean, there was finally a settlement, but uh, are we heading down that road again? I, I don't think so, uh, because um, my gut feeling is that the land that Stelco will want to retain, Bedrock will want to retain, is actually probably that land that is closest to the water. Remember that the product that they make, steel, is heavy. Often it is put on boats, and so I think they'll want to keep the water access. I think what they're giving up are the warehouses, which are really closer to the road. Again, that would be great news, because if, if the, it was the other way around, if they wanted to keep the land that was closest to the roads, then how the heck do I get back to the water lots? I think it would be quite different. So I think, again, we're, we're speculating here because I'm not an insider, but I think the land that they want to give up would actually have the most commercial potential. But with that in mind, though, I mean, does that mean the federal government, who so far have been silent on this whole thing, and much to the chagrin of the union, I guess, when it comes to yeah. some of the legislation, but now that we're into the the short strokes here as to the deal itself, uh, do the feds come in there and say, wait a second, we, you know, you owe us money now, because that's, that, that's, that's our jurisdiction, that's our land? That's, it's an interesting question, and one that the court has not addressed at this point. Um, I actually don't think the federal government is a party to this uh, court case, this restructuring case. 
I, I think the province asked for a seat because the province was owned money, but I don't think the federal government has a seat at the table. Um, so to your, to your, again, directly to your question, I, I don't think at this point the federal government is involved, and I don't think at this point they would want to derail this if there is a possibility to save in total nearly 2,000 jobs and do something good for the pensioners. I'm not, I, I guess I am a little surprised that the province in proposing taking over this land and doing the remediation has not sought some money from the federal government. Remediation, like the Randall Reef, is a three-part partnership. There's a province there. There's also the municipality who's doing their part, and then there's the federal government doing their part, along with the private sector. So usually all three levels of government come in when it comes to questions of remediation, and that may become more evident as we head into 2017. Maybe there is a partnership that just hasn't been mentioned at this point that will come out uh, as we uh, get closer to the end of this deal. But maybe the reason that discussion hasn't taken place is because this is a relatively new wrinkle, isn't it? This this land bank idea where the province is going to oversee this? Yeah, this we, we haven't talked about that before. No, and in fact, uh, another interesting question that I think some environmentalists raise is, well, does this set some kind of a precedent? This is the first time they've tried this. It's a clever idea. It's a clever idea in the sense that it would allow a private corporation who otherwise might be scared off by the unknown to get involved. And I know I, I can imagine some of your listeners saying, well, the private corporation, they've got the money to fix it up. But the private corporation says, I didn't create the problem. This was done over 100 years of operations. I'm just coming along now trying to be as much of a white knight as I can. I just don't have deep enough pockets to fix anything that comes up. So this idea that the province would put it in a land trust, I think it's a clever idea. It could backfire, Bill, and I think we, we do need to talk about that for a second, that the province doesn't really know what the remediation cost of the land is because there's not been a proper environmental assessment on over 800 acres of land. Just an environmental assessment alone will probably cost you 5 to $10 million to know exactly what's there and where it is and how might you fix it. So they've taken quite a gamble that the least polluted lands would be the ones that would be remediated, and that's why they've got such a low cost. But down the road, let's just say for the sake of argument that bedrock fails completely. They take over the land, but they fail completely. Now the, the province is going to inherit all of the land, and if there's no need to make any kind of steel products at all down at the waterfront, it's the province who would be on the hook to try to remediate this stuff. You and I as taxpayers could be in for half a billion dollars, a billion dollars, who knows what the remediation cost is because we haven't done the full environmental assessment. So they've, to the provinces, I'll say credit, they've been prepared to jump in and, and take a black box where they just really don't know what's involved uh, as a way to try to make this deal work. With this deal, let's assume that, that everything goes according to the plan here and, and the province moves in, takes over the land, et cetera, et cetera. Does this make all of a sudden this entity, this steel company, uh, more attractive to a potential buyer? Because as I say, we all know that Bedrock's not here for the long game. I'll say yes, although again, remember that uh, what a steel company will be most interested in has nothing to do with Hamilton. They'll be most interested in a few years in the Nanticoke Works because that's a full-functioning steel mill. It has a blast furnace, what have you. In fact, the one person who probably is, or the one group who should be most concerned might be the union because if this goes forward, I think what we're admitting is that there will be no blast furnace, that they will not lease back even more land to restart the blast furnace. Uh, and that's probably, in the longer term, bad news for Hamilton. But sure, Bill, anytime you can eliminate an impediment or a possible impediment, it will make the deal more attractive to some private buyer. But what will ultimately help Bedrock is, look, we've got this beautiful plant in Nanticoke, who wants to buy it, and in four or five years they might find a buyer. Whether they'll still want the Coke ovens, whether they'll want the zinc line, whether they'll want the cold mill, 
operations, that would be a big question mark. And conceivably, five years from now, you could see all the operations in Hamilton shut down. A buyer might only want half the company, not the whole thing. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Talk about the housing market. Well, there's a number of stories that have uh, floated uh, over the last little while here about availability and, frankly, affordability when it comes to the market these days. And uh, there's an interesting story uh, that uh, was on CBC uh, television website just a little while ago about affordability and the, asking the question that uh, maybe a lot of us have been dodging for the last little while, are, is housing still affordable? I mean, it seems to be everybody's dream now to be, at some point, uh, the owner of your own domicile as opposed to renting, but is it even viable for an awful lot of people these days? Let's uh, bring Rob Golfie into it, Realtor, of course, with Remax Escarpment, uh, to join us here on the Bill Kelly Show to discuss this. How are you doing this morning, Rob? Great, thanks, Bill. How are you doing? Good, good. I thought you were going to say cold, but okay, fine. <laughs> it is a little cold, that's for sure. It's a little nippy, but the housing market is not cold. I mean, what's going on here? This Is, is affordability starting to become a factor now, Rob? Affordability is becoming a factor. More and more uh, buyers from uh, the GTA are, are spreading uh, out towards uh, the Hamilton-Niagara area. So they're trading, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're looking at buying. They want something that they have a little backyard. You know, they're thinking about, uh, you know, raising, uh, starting a family. And, uh, and they're going to they're gonna try to do the commute thing. There was a time and, and when... There was almost a, a, a continuum that we, we used to follow, wasn't there, Rob? I mean, you'd start off when you were young, uh, whether you were you know had a, a significant other, married, whatever the case might be, and you got what they called a starter home. You know, it was usually not that big, uh, and and as your family grew or as your income situation changed, maybe you'd move up to a different house, maybe a little bit larger, whatever the case might be, uh, and then of course you know when the kids all leave and you become an empty nester, you tended to downsize and maybe put a little money away from the sale of that house. Uh, is that still happening, or is, it, is, is there something that's, that's breaking that, that pattern? Well, it's still happening. Uh, just, uh, well, I had a, a lady that had been living in her house uh, uh, since, I think, the mid-80s uh, mid or early 80s. And uh, her husband passed away, you know, four years ago, and, and uh, she wanted to downsize. She had a, bun- a three-bedroom bungalow already, you know, had a finished basement, and uh, and she lives in a bungalow on the Hamilton Mountain, and she goes, oh, I'm looking for you know a smaller house. And I said I said to her, I go, I go, I don't think you're ready for uh, a move to another house, uh, just because of the fact. Um, I said you might get a smaller house with less bedrooms, but the cost of moving is going to be too much. I said you, I said you're still you know young enough that you can stay here longer, and then and then maybe go to an apartment or a condo, but. She, but you could tell she wanted something smaller, and I told her it's not. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to to do that. It'll cost her too much money. But people are are changing over. You know, they're downsizing, they're upsizing. It's all happening through the Hamilton area. But uh, but housing prices are going up just because of the fact that we got more people moving out this way from uh, you know the the big city. Yeah, because I've heard similar stories uh, from from people that are now empty nesters. And they say, well, you know, the, the kids are all gone. They're off working or they're living in another part of the city or the country, whatever the case might be. So and, and in one particular couple I know, they said, yeah, so we started looking around to see what the market was like. And they said, you know what, it doesn't make much sense for us economically to downsize because the size of the house that we'd want 
is worth almost as much as we paid for this thing. And, you know, so in other words, we don't have that much equity in it. There's still a mortgage on the house. We may as well just stay where we are. It, it, yeah, exactly, exactly. A lot of people, the big two-story homes, people are selling their big two-stories and looking for the bungalows, and they're going, oh, my God, like, are you telling me I'm selling my five $600,000 two-story home and getting a five, $550,000 bungalow? It, it doesn't make sense. And and they're scared, and then they just stay where they are and, and have to put up with the, uh, you know, the stairs and everything else like that. It, it, it is becoming. The baby boomers are pushing the market up on the, small, on the smaller homes, the bungalows and the, and the one-and-a-half one stories. And uh, so, you know, and all these baby boomers want to downsize, and, and it's becoming difficult for them because a lot of them are doing it now. I mean, there are some advantages, though, aren't there, Rob? Notwithstanding the fact that if you look at the price of the one that you're in and the price of the one that you may want, uh, there may not be a whole lot of difference right now, but uh, it's a smaller house. That means your heating costs would probably be smaller. Uh, your taxes would likely be smaller, depending, I guess, which area into it. So you really have to sit down with uh, with somebody who knows the marketing and, and really get all those numbers in front of you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, 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 there, there will be a shift in price, uh, you know, the, all the utilities, the taxes, even maintenance on the house. Everything uh, just becomes easier, even cleaning the house. Um, for the for the uh, ladies that uh, that are cleaning or the guys, but uh, it, it does make it easier. But there, it's gonna it's gonna be a little costly for that little shift change. Absolutely. What about first time home buyers? Those that are just getting into the market. Oftentimes, they're people that have been renting uh, either a house or, a, or an apartment, or whatever the case might be, and they want to make that jump into actually owning. Uh, is it still viable for them right now? It is, but to a certain degree. But um, the government made it uh, tougher with the uh, stress test where they have to qualify for a higher interest rate, even though the interest rate is not that high. Um, and, um, and, it, and I think there's a lot of peer pressure, too. Like, home ownership is a big thing now for, uh, for millennials. Uh, they, uh, you know, their friends are buying houses. So it is, there's, a, a, you know, a lot of pressure uh, from their uh, friends that, uh, you know what, well, we got to own a house, you know, we're working and, and, and so on. And, you know, and they probably grew up in a house that, you know, the parents, you know, uh, will stress to them saying, listen, you, you know, home ownership is the way to go, don't rent. So there's, there's pressure coming from both sides, and, and they're finding it difficult, and, and, it's a, and there, a lot of anxiety is created because the, the housing prices are going up faster than they can save the money for the down payment. Well, then where, at what point do you jump and, and just say, you know, you know, there used to be a comfort level to say, well, you know, I want to be able to put down 10% or 15%, I mean, depending on how much you were able to save. But since, since the, the prices are, are rising with such rapidity at these, these stage, do you just figure, okay, I'm just going to go now and, and I'll just have to deal with it? Because then you, the other concern, I guess, on the other side of that issue, Rob, is, well, what happens if interest rates go up? Yeah, exactly. So that's why they they created the stress test. So a lot of them are getting help from their parents, and just getting in the in the marketplace. Uh, just because it, it, another year goes by, it's just the housing prices go up another five to twenty percent, and now they're they're in, it's just it's just becoming uh, difficult. So uh, some of them are moving out of town. Uh, if they're from the GTA, they're going down to Hamilton. From people from Hamilton are moving towards Niagara, Brantford. Um, so it just so they can afford it. So now they're trading. Now they're they're going to deal with the stress of driving back and forth, commuting to uh, their uh, long distance to their work to to afford a home. So that's why you're seeing a well, as you mentioned, the move toward the Hamilton area down Niagara. Barry is another hot market these days Barry, too, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely, yeah. 
And yeah. and and that obviously is uh, I, I would think at least partly as a result of the fact that they put uh, a go train that runs all day go service between Barrie and Toronto. So basically, I guess you can buy a house in Barrie for a lot less than you can in Toronto, and you hop on the train every day to go to work if that's if it's convenient for you. If if if, if you have a job that is stationary at one location. But if you're a sales guy or you're, uh, you know, you need a vehicle to for your job to go from different location, or if you uh, have a job and um, your the go train doesn't is nowhere near uh, where your uh, uh, work is, it, it you have no choice but to drive to work, and uh, you know people are trying to commute, and uh, but it's just becoming it's it's getting tougher and tougher out there. There's no doubt about it. So where do you see this going in 2017? You know the market has. Uh, never been hotter, but at the same time, you know, there, there are some people that are feeling as if they they could be left out in this whole thing. I mean, let's face it, there are some people that are making not very much money and still want to be homeowners. And there was a time when that was still doable. Is it still doable? It is if they move out of town. Like I mean, especially from the GTA, um, there, there's still good deals uh, locally here in Hamilton. There's no doubt about it. Um, they just, you know, with the stress test on uh, that the government imposed, uh, I think last month or the month before, um, their affordability on that little nicer home is going to be tougher. Um, you know what? It just, uh, you know, people are going to have to commute now to uh, to get uh, to afford a house, and uh, and they're going to have to drive uh, further to uh, to to go to work. You know, the the housing prices will continue to rise, especially. I mean, Hamilton is a, is a big city, but not a big city compared to Toronto. And uh, you're going to find uh, we're our population is going to grow faster here, and uh, more people are going to settle here. And then, and then, hopefully, a lot more jobs will come this way because they're going to realize uh, the companies are going to realize that uh, most of their employees are are living outside of the GTA. What are they buying? Uh, the, those people that are migrating from the, those markets that are pricing themselves right out of the, the market these days. They're, uh, yeah, they're they're buying townhouses and they're buying they're buying brand new townhouses from the builders, um, which they love. They you know because everything's brand new. So you got the two types of buyers. You got the buyers that love the old. Um, they they love the character homes downtown. So you got those buyers coming in, and some of them are fixing them up, and you know, and they're enjoying their their nice downtown lifestyle. And then you got the other ones that uh, want everything brand new. Um, they they have one or two kids, uh, or they're planning on having some kids, and they're, and they're buying brand new townhouses. Like you go to these new subdivisions, especially in um, up on uh, Stony Creek Mountain. Um, you can tell they're 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 all people from out of town. They're like I mean, and and it's a great atmosphere because everybody's in the same situation. Nobody's actually not many people are from locally, are from uh, Hamilton that are moving in there. Uh, there is a small percentage though, but uh, the bulk of them are are all coming from outside of the city. I was talking to some builders, some home builders, about this a couple of weeks ago, Rob, and I'm sure you've seen this happen all the time. So when you talk to some of your clients. Uh, not only are they buying those, as, as you said, those townhouses, but at the same time, uh, one of the, the things that's really changed now is that they're demanding uh, all the uh, all the extras uh, in these townhouses, uh, things that used to be extras anyway. Now they say, no, that want, uh, we want standard. You know, we want granite, uh, you know, cab- this, uh, we want new cabinetry, all this sort of stuff. So they, they, everybody said to up their game here because of the demand. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, like you, you, like granite countertops is is kind of like mandatory now when people are looking for homes, and it, and and I'd say probably quite a few uh, um, people buying new uh, granite countertops is, uh, is is definitely on top of the list, 
And uh, so when people are looking now as a resale, they, you know, that's what they're looking for. And uh, so all the, you know, they want everything. The, the generation today, they want everything and all done, and they just move in and kick their feet up, and they can just sit back and watch TV after. <laughs> <laughs> what about the, What's that do to the resale market, though? In other words, if they're, shoot, they're targeting that sort of stuff and shooting all their energy and resources into that right now, what about that person that wants to sell that three-bedroom bungalow that maybe is over the years, maybe even done some work on it to try to 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 modernize, you know, the the kitchen or something like that. I mean, there's got to be some deals out there in that market. There is, there is, but because the market, because there's such a low inventory, those ones, like even the people that don't have all those upgrades, they're still they're doing pretty good on their on their resale price. I mean, obviously, when you have all the upgrades, you're, you're going to do a lot, a lot better on your resale price. But the ones that don't have it, they're doing great because the inventory is low. People need a home, and they're jumping on it. People are, people are buying houses on, you know, Mohawk and Fennel that weren't planning on buying a house, but because that's the only one that's available right now and they need a house in the next 90 days because they're afraid that other houses are just going to keep going up, they're buying them. So you get a person that wasn't planning on buying a house on a busy street, they're buying them. And, uh, and it's it just because of the low inventory. Low inventory, we got a high demand, you know, people moving away from uh, the GTA, and, uh, and it, just, it, it just makes Hamilton uh, the, the best place to move to. Are we still into situations, Rob, where there's actually bidding wars on some of these properties? Yes, yes. Um, it, it, it slowed down a, a, just a tad, but not, not, uh, but, but there are still bidding wars. I mean, we've got um, uh, one of our agents is going into um, showing a house, and they said there's no offers till um, I think uh, uh, tomorrow or the next day. So, um, so you know, we don't know how many people are going to be uh, coming in with offers. But it's not as many as there was before. But I'll tell you something, January, when it comes, look out. You're going to see bidding wars in the first four months of this year, five months. It's, it's, it's going to be chaos. And, and, uh, and then that's when you see the housing prices jump. You know, you're asking $400,000 for a house. They're selling for four fifty, and And it just keeps going up and up. Have you ever seen that before in the market? I mean, that, that seemed to me to be unprecedented. Two, 2016 was, I couldn't believe, a crazy year. Uh, of that happening, we I I just you know like 2015 we you know we, we saw that but not on almost every house that went up for sale. 2016, in the first five months of this year, no matter what you put up for sale was selling. You could have sold a garage for good money, but uh, it just I never seen that before, and uh, and and I see it still happening uh, in the first five months of, of uh, 2017. So you got to. You know, people have to jump in and, and uh, get a house, and uh, and hopefully they, they'll build some equity, and and then they can move. You know, they're now they're part of the program. You know, they'll start building equity, and then you know, stay there for five years and sell, then go to a bigger house or a different house. Yeah, I mean, even the bidding process has really evolved, hasn't it? I mean, you know, the time was where you could put an offer in, and you know, they might counter offer it, and you'd sign that back and go back and forth like that. Uh, I've heard of situations over this past year where they're actually accepting sealed bids on a house, and they just determine. You know, they'll open them and they'll pick one, and that's it. You don't get a chance to actually re-up and 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 make a different offer. That's right. That's right. They just, yeah. Like I, I mean, I know that uh, you know, there's been like 40 people putting uh, 40 40 different offers, and you have to go through every one. And some of them are the same. Like you got you got 40 offers. There's a high probability you're going to get three or four of them identical offers. So you send those back. And if they're the highest ones, you send those back and tell them, okay, you know, come back again. So now you got you're in competition with five people. They're already getting fifty thousand more than asking, 
and then you're sending them back and trying to get another five to ten thousand dollars more on top of the fifty thousand that's already above asking, and it just uh, it just uh, it's just chaos. And uh, we're um, uh, I don't know how much longer it'll keep going. The interest rates are are changing, and uh, you know uh, I know you know the British Columbia they changed their uh, uh, with the foreign buyers, so that kind of slowed that down for them in uh, in BC. So. Yeah, but that's bizarre. I mean, on the one hand, they instituted that new law about foreign ownership, and at the same time, Premier Clark just uh, promised, it's not done yet, but it's uh, they've got an election coming up, uh, they're going to offer interest-free loans to first-time home buyers, which, which now there's going to have to be some qualification for it, too, but it, it, it's, it's really kind of incongruous because they, they're taking away at one side, and on the other hand, they're trying to push people into the market. It's rather That's bizarre. That's right, and I read that they're offering the, for the first five years no payments. Is that true? Is that a mistake? I'm not sure. I, again, it's an election promise at this stage, so it's, right, right. You know, they, and, they don't put too many too much meat on the bones, do they? Well, well, look what happened to the U.S. with the subprime markets. They they had an escalating interest rate. So what happened was, people would get a mortgage in the U.S. This was uh, in 2005, six, and seven, and the first two years the interest rates were very low. And and to to justify the interest rate, the cheap interest rate, uh, after two or three years, the interest rate dramatically went up to almost seven eight percent. So when people, when after two years they or three years they own the house, now their interest rates up to eight percent. They couldn't afford it. That's why they had all these the housing uh, problem in the U.S. Now I don't know why the B.C. government's offering interest-free loans and all that kind of because when people are used to paying a, a mortgage at a certain rate. And then it goes up two or three or four percent. They're not going to be able to handle it because they adjusted their their lifestyle at that interest rate. Mm-hmm. So the interest rate, I think they're hurting themselves. I know they're trying to bring the, uh, you know, help people out, but they're really hurting them. And uh, and and look what happened to the U.S. They had the biggest uh, housing problem uh, in in the history of uh, of. Of housing. Well, sure. Know. I mean, for some people just walked away from homes. It's just you know, we can't afford this anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's I, obviously what they're concerned about here. What, what about some of the larger homes? I mean, there's a lot. There's a, when you look at this Hamilton market specifically, and you look at places like, like Ancaster and some of the Binbrook areas, some rather nice homes that were built 15, 20 years ago. Uh, you know, some of them with four bedrooms. In other words, for larger families. Yeah. Uh, what's happening with that market? I mean, it seems as if the the bungalows seem to be pretty hot right now. But what about those? Because those yeah. may be the people that want to downsize. Yeah, that market is strong and steady. It's not jumping like the lower end market, but it is moving. It is moving, and it, and it's 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 the area that people want to move to. Like you know, the West Mountain is is uh, if you're moving on the mountain, if you got enough money. Uh, the West Mountain is the preferred area. Uh, then after that, you've got Ancaster. So now Ancaster, I mean, everybody, you know, wants to move to Ancaster, Dundas. That is the first preferred area that people want to move in Hamilton, but you're going to pay a premium. Like, you know, like it's, you know, 600 you know, to $800,000 for, uh, depending on a new house, you know, if it's a 2,600, 2,700-square-foot, two-story, two four-bedroom house, you can, you know, you're up to eight eight hundred thousand dollars on a house, and it's a lot of money. Like it's, so I mean, it takes time, uh, and then you, you know, but then, you know, it's just the way it goes. The cycle of Hamilton, you know, you start off in the east end or the or the north end, and then you work your way up to the mountain, the west, then the west mountain and the Ancaster. You've arrived. <laughs> you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. The Electoral College will meet today in various state capitals more often than not. 
and they will vote for the President of the United States of America. Yeah, I know the general election was November the 8th, but you know how the American system is. Uh, the results of that popular vote, of course, it really uh, determines how many people from the Electoral College are going to be voting in this thing for which candidate. And Donald Trump was the, and is the president-elect. However, there has been a move afoot in some circles to try to get some of these Electoral College votes to actually not vote for Trump, even though he may have, in fact, won those states. Is it going to happen? Is anybody going to do that? Whether it be well, we actually probably not even going to find out the answer today. I'll explain that to you in just a couple of seconds. Actually, I'm going to get Michael to explain it. Michael Diamond is with us. He's a principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto, conservative political pundit, and always a welcome guest on the program. Michael, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good. Uh, you've been sitting around here watching this happen since November the eighth. Uh, all the the back and forth that's gone on in this. I'm sure. Have you, have you seen those? Uh, there's a video that's making the rounds on social media right now. With who's in that? Martin Sheen and Mike Farrell used to get be on Mash and uh, a bunch of other famous folks. Um, some of whom I don't recognize, but all all petitioning the electoral college people to change their vote and say it's not a vote for Hillary. It's just a vote against Donald Trump. Uh, is anybody listening to this? Well, you know, I mean, everyone's listening to these people, and the election, in part, Donald Trump's success in the election, where he won more votes than Hillary Clinton in more states with more of the population, that is why he is now president-elect. We're listening to these folks, and they said, enough, guys, we don't care, we don't listen to you, you're, you're, not, the, uh, uh, you're, not, you're not oligarchs, you're, you're not the House of Lords, we don't care. Because uh, they've been saying, well, no, it's, it's really simple, as if as if this is really part of the process. Now, I, I know that constitutionally there is an idea and a possibility that they can change this. But let, let's talk about somebody who's even considering doing that, who has one of the electoral uh, voters in this process here today, Michael. The fact is there are some ramifications if they were to do this, quite aside from the fact that they might... You know, the, the, I, let's go into the hypothetical once again. Say they're, they're representing a state that's where they're supposed to vote for Trump, and they say, no, I'm going to change my vote. There are penalties involved and a number of things that can happen to the people that actually do that, if, in fact, they do it. Well, exactly. So 29 states. So under, under the federal constitution, the Electoral College is somewhat of an independent body. They are not bound federally. But then when you get into each state where there's, you know, 50 plus D.C., 51 sets of rules on this, uh, electors are bound. D.C., for example, in 2000 had a faithless elector when one of their three electors decided to abstain instead of voting for Al Gore uh, to allow for, uh, to, to protest the D.C is not a state. And uh, following her, that elector doing that, uh, the uh, government in D.C. has now brought in a law to bound their elector, so they are not able to do that. So um, so 29 states off the hop uh, insist upon the electors legally having to vote the way that the population has instructed them to. So that's number one. Number two, there, there's the, the other states where electors are not bound, but they're certainly morally bound. They have been selected. Their votes are not worth more than the populace. Anyone who thinks that they are is uh, foolish and, uh, again, an example of why Donald Trump was elected, that sort of thinking that there should be elite rule in the United States. Uh, that may have been the intent when uh, Hamilton uh, and, and his cronies put this together. Times have changed, and uh, we're now... This is a way to ensure that there's a national election where the voters are heard, but that it keeps in mind regional balance. It's, this is, was really just a routine part of the process in past years. Why is it taking such special significance this year? 
Well, it, it's in part, I think, because everything in this election is taking a special significance because of Donald Trump and the, uh, uh, an inability to accept the results of the election for many people. And, you know, we did see in 2000 when, when George W. Bush uh, lost the popular vote very narrowly but won the Electoral College also very narrowly, much more narrowly than Donald Trump won the Electoral College, uh, that uh, there, there was a bit of a push. And in the end, only one voter didn't vote the way that they were selected to vote by their state. And that cost Al Gore a vote, but uh, but this time it's all about Trump. You know, this is the television election; it's the reality show election because of him, and that's why we're seeing increased attention on this. Did it help people to to get over the their, the furor about the 2000 election? That that Gore actually basically said, "Look, it's over. Let's let's just let things go." And Hillary really hasn't said that. For sure. You know, Al Gore, uh, if some people say, oh, well, you know, Hillary just took her time like Al Gore. Al Gore had a lot more reason to take his time in conceding that election than uh, Hillary Clinton did. It was not clear. You know, folks went to bed and then woke up the day after, and we had no idea who won Florida. We had no idea who won New Mexico. We had no idea who won Wisconsin. We had no idea who won uh, Oregon. So there's a whole lot at stake uh, and recounts that needed to happen, especially in Florida. So Al Gore was right to take his time. But when he conceded defeat, he really did start the uh, process of healing uh, and and invited uh, Dick Cheney uh, to the Naval Observatory to start talking about their transition and, and was really as uh, classy in the situation as one could be. Hillary Clinton hasn't done that and has also not, you know, there hasn't been a clear directive from her campaign to the electors, don't do this, don't, don't, don't mess around with democracy. Let's delve into the hypothetical, if we could, Michael, for just a couple of minutes on this. Let's assume that uh, that uh, 37 do change their votes. Just let's go down that road just for, you know, giggles. Uh, what happens then? That, that, that doesn't mean Hillary becomes president. Well, it doesn't, because 37, well, we already know one is going to change his vote. There's been an elector in Texas who's certainly been enjoying his 15 minutes of fame, which I cannot wait to be up at noon today, uh, Central Standard Time, when uh, he casts his vote. And he said he's not sure how he's going to vote, but it won't be for Donald Trump. And he's hinted that maybe it will be for Governor John Kasich. So right now you have, uh, you have, you'll have then 305 votes for Donald Trump. He'll still be in the lead, one vote for John Kasich. If any more Republican uh, electors are to the fact and vote for anybody but Hillary Clinton, all that does is, uh, if 37 withhold their vote from Donald Trump and vote for somebody else, all that does is it would push the election to the House of Representatives. So the top three finishers in the Electoral College would be able to be decided who was going to be president by the House, one vote per state. The fact of the matter is, all this would do is it would delay the election from today until January, when the House would vote. They would count what would happen is both both House of the Congress meet together, the vice president counts the electoral votes, and then announces the results. If no one has a clear majority of 50% plus one, that 270 that is required to be elected, then the House will select the president from the top three finishers. So perhaps there's a theory that, you know, a couple of folks vote for John Kasich, 37, I guess, hold, withhold their support from Donald Trump, uh, and then he's selected by the House of Representatives. It ain't going to happen. No, but that's why I say we're going down the, 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 that hypothetical road right now. But in all likelihood, let's continue down that road. Let's assume that the 37 don't, and, and all of a sudden, okay, it goes to the House. Uh, that's controlled by the Republicans anyway. So, I mean, what, what are the chances they're going to select somebody else? Well, exactly. And not only is it controlled by the Republicans, but the way that it's done is that each state get one, gets one vote. So California, for example, with their uh, over 50 members of the House of Representatives, 
uh, predominantly controlled by Democrats, will get one vote. North Dakota, with one Republican member of Congress, gets one vote. So not only would it be a Republican victory in the House of Representatives, it would be a huge, as the president-elect would say, Republican victory. <laughs> the other element to, to, to come into play here, too, if again that were to happen, uh, is that the the fewer within the Republican Party about uh, about Trump as as their representative as, as their candidate in this election, has pretty much died down now, hasn't it, Michael? You know the way he's gone about his transition. Uh, I mean, the rallies aside, which have been the thank you victory rallies, which have been uh, quite bizarre and not really something we've seen before. But you know, his cabinet is fairly. Con- you know, his cabinet isn't as bad as people were fearing. He, he for example, Elaine Chao, who is the wife of uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. This is a Washington insider couple. Uh, he hasn't gone to war with the Republican establishment. He can't get more Republican establishment than being the wife of the Senate Majority Leader who'd served in George W. Bush's cabinet also. Uh, so he hasn't gone to war with the establishment. So there, And he, he you know, considered Mitt Romney for Secretary of State, so he's much less uh, hostile towards the, the this establishment than folks thought he was going to before the election. And because of that, uh, tempers have died down. And as a result, uh, uh, maybe of his behavior and some of the other things, it seems as if that resentment within the party has has tempered as well. Now I, I understand there's always that move in, in any political process, isn't there, Michael? When once the election is over, it's okay. We have to rally behind the candidate now, you know, because you know, let's face it, we're Republicans, and he he ran as the Republican candidate. But I, I really get the sense there's, so, there's still some dissenting voices. There always will be, I'm sure. But it just seems as if this this concern within the party that uh, that you know we're going to make this tough on this guy never really seemed to amend. Now once they start introducing legislation, that could change. But right now. There's, there's still a bit of a honeymoon going on between the Republicans and Mr. Trump, isn't there? Oh, you know, absolutely. And and for the most part, if you look at Republicans in the Senate, we're going to have to advise and consent on his uh, nominations to the Foreign Service and to the Cabinet. With the exception of uh, John Bolton for Deputy Secretary of State, which has not been announced yet, but is uh, likely, uh, which has been speculated to, where Rand Paul said he would withhold his support, and Rex Tillerson, where Marco Rubio, who's on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, hasn't said he wouldn't support Mr. Tillerson, but has said he has some questions about it. And I think in the end of the day, he will support him. There hasn't even been opposition on his cabinet-level appointments. Well, even in the case of Tillerson, wasn't it the, the Washington insiders that were pushing for him anyway? Exactly. He's, he's hardly an outsider. I mean, he may be new to the, to the political realm, but he's certainly not new to Washington. Well, precisely. And when Marco Rubio gets a call from James Baker, one of the great Republican uh, a former Secretary of State and former White House Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Treasury and Condoleezza Rice and, and Bob Gates, not people who were out there for Donald Trump during the campaigns. They know, you know, Tillerson's the one. You, you ought to support him. Marco Rubio is going to take that very seriously because as much as he may have had issues with Donald Trump during the campaign and the nomination when they ran against for each other, the respect he'll have for those three individuals is unquestionable. The other element, you touched on this a couple of minutes ago, but it's worth reminding our listeners, uh, even though they're voting today in the Electoral College, we don't find this out until January, right? Exactly. It's going to be January 6th. So the electoral, the election happens on the Tuesday after the second Monday in November to ensure that the election is not the day after All Saints Day. I don't know why, but the Electoral College is counted on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. 
and then the, uh, the the electoral vote will be counted this year on January 6th in a joint session of Congress. And you know, in the in the past, it's really quite uh, remarkable because the vice president will be the one who will count and tabulate and announce the results. So you've had in the past Richard Nixon, for example, announcing his own defeat for the presidency, and you've also had George W. George Herbert Walker Bush announcing his own victory uh, to the presidency. So it can be quite an emotional. Uh, well, I guess Al Gore would have done that too, wouldn't he? Exactly, Al Gore did, and he 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 could have left the country, and it could have gone to the president pro tempo, but he chose to stay, which was a very important act of uh, reconciliation, I think, for the country after that divisive election. And, and, and by the way, these are secret ballots. I mean, these are sealed ballots. They, they will be opened on that day. Well, we'll know uh, also, though, out of the count today, because sure. in the past, um, you know, there was a, a time in 2004, it, it begs the question, but I believe it was Minnesota, where an elector accidentally selected John Edwards for president and John Kerry for vice president. If that election had been any closer, that would have uh, reaped huge consequences and could have sent it to uh, a deadlock and to the House of Representatives to vote, which would have been, you know, a great uh, movie or novel, I suppose. But it, it uh, we, we knew it that day that that one elector uh made that mistake. So they are allowed to talk about it then. In other words, even though their ballot will be sealed today, they can go to, I'm sure there will be media requests and say, okay, Joe, how did you vote? And and they're, they're quite happy to talk about it then. And I'm also not sure that state by state it doesn't change that in some states the, uh, the, the results are announced before they're sent to Congress. But they're not officially counted until the vice president opens and announces them. So there is a push inside, and you go down any news site here, and there's always this one story saying, you know, here's what's going to happen. But, I mean, even even the most conscientious of the mainstream media, which is another phrase that uh, is one of those catchphrases of 2016, I guess, uh, the New York Times even this morning in, in their edition said, look, don't expect any any surprises here. It's, it says this one guy that's been vocal about this is probably going to change his vote or not vote for Trump. But at the end of the day, notwithstanding the the offer that Michael Moore, the filmmaker, made today as well, that I'll pay your legal expenses if you change your vote, uh, this thing pretty much rolls out the way we expect it to roll out, doesn't it? Precisely. And you know what? In Canada, in an election, if somebody was offering someone money uh, that resulting to their vote, that would be illegal. I'm pretty sure in the United States it is. So I hope someone uh, checks in on that with uh, Mr. Moore, because uh, offering to pay someone to break the law uh, in a matter of democracy is really uh, extra, uh, you know, let's talk about deplorable. That's deplorable. Michael, that's civil disobedience when you do it for your own political means. It's not breaking <laughs> the law. It, when you're Michael Moore. It's Am I mincing words here? <laughs> But, but I mean, they're looking at this as their last shot at this or their last hope at this. But, I mean, it is what it is, and, and people voted the way that they did. And uh, this, I would imagine, and, and when they finally do count the votes and make this public, uh, this is going to pretty much put an end to this. You know, I don't think it will, because what we see with these anti-establishment folks like like uh, Donald Trump, the day after Rob Ford was elected, and I, I worked on that campaign, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm proud to have, even though some folks think I shouldn't be, uh, the day after he was elected, that left-wing establishment in Toronto started thinking, how do we get Rob Ford out of office before the election? And I think we're going to see that with Trump. We're going to see and it's going to be awfully hard, because Republicans control the House of Representatives, so it's going to be hard to start moving articles of impeachment for no reason uh, at this point uh, through the Judiciary Committee at any point in the next two years for sure. But uh, I think we're going to, you know, folks aren't going to give up that easily because the left can't get over it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.